Hi everyone. I trust that you are well. I trust that you've had a blessed week. And I trust that during this past week, you've had time to spend alone, quietly, with God. We continue with our sermon series, Habits for Wholeness, Spiritual Disciplines. And today I'd like us to look at the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. I'm going to tackle this over two weeks. This week I'd like to focus on why we read the Bible and next time look at how we read the Bible. Last time we were together, we looked at the dual disciplines of silence and solitude, and I emphasized the need for us to be quiet and alone so that we can hear the voice of God. And someone very helpfully and insightfully asked me afterwards what it means to hear the voice of God. What should we be expecting to hear? An audible voice? An idea that pops into my head? And how would one know if that was a God idea or just your own thoughts? Or is hearing the voice of God something else entirely? I think it's vitally important to know that the primary way in which God speaks to us is through the Bible. We can quibble about other ways in which God may choose to speak to us today, but the primary way in which God speaks to us is through his word, and any other way in which God may speak must be measured against the plumb line of Scripture, and hence our study today. I'd like us to look at the Bible, or the Scriptures, or the Word, I'll use those terms interchangeably, under a couple of headings today. The Bible as Revelation, the Bible as the Word of God, the Bible as a historical book, and the Bible as the power of God. Firstly, the Bible as Revelation. Let me ask a quick question at this point. Can you guess what I am thinking? I suppose there's no way for you to really answer that question, but let me give you the answer. The simple reality is that it is not possible for you to guess my thoughts unless I reveal them to you through my words, whether that is spoken words or written words. Perhaps I might paint a picture for you, and you would have a pretty good idea of what my painting is about, but you wouldn't know exactly the underlying meanings, some of the intentions, some of the more subtle feelings, unless I revealed the painting's meaning to you through my words. And the same is true of Almighty God. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, Paul says we can see some things about God from the natural world around us, the fact that God is powerful, the fact that there is a God, but even that needs some interpretation. You might look at a beautiful sunset or seascape or a meadow of flowers and come to the conclusion that God is a God of beauty and power and order. But then you might see a lion killing a wildebeest or a spider catching a fly 
or a tornado and come to a very different conclusion as to the nature of God. The evidence about God from nature is ambiguous. We need a little bit of clarity. Also, it's true to say that God is so big and so beyond our understanding that unless he reveals himself to us, we are never going to figure him out for ourselves. The Bible, then, is God's revelation, his self-disclosure of who he is and what he is doing in our world. You see, God has acted for us in history, and the Bible is a record of that history, of what God has done on our behalf. One modern writer has this to say about the Bible. In the Bible, God tells us about himself, and especially about Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. The Bible unfolds the law of God to us and shows us how we've all broken it. There we learn how Christ died as a sinless, willing substitute for breakers of God's law, and how we must repent and believe in him to be right with God. In the Bible, we learn the ways and the will of the Lord. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that is pleasing to God, as well as best and most fulfilling for ourselves. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. That last phrase is so important. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. So, the Bible as God's revelation. Secondly, the Bible as the Word of God. In the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament, we read these words, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some Bible versions translate this as all scripture is inspired. The word inspiration tries to capture this idea of scripture being God-breathed. For some very odd reason, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible chose to translate this as every scripture inspired by God is useful, thereby suggesting that some parts of scripture are inspired while others are not, which is clearly an error in translation. Now, we often associate the word inspiration with the word inspiring, and let's be honest, there are parts of the Bible, like the genealogies or sections of the book of Numbers, that are less than inspiring. But the Greek word that Paul uses here for God-breathed refers not so much to inspiration as it does to exhalation. All scripture is exhaled by God. It is his word, the very breath of his mouth. Remember how during his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And scripture is every word coming from the mouth of God. In some Christian traditions then, when the Bible is read, 
the minister will call the congregation to stand for the reading of God's word. There's biblical precedent for this in the book of Nehemiah, when we read that after the exile, when the people are back in the land, they hold an assembly and Ezra the priest reads God's law to the people. And Nehemiah tells us, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. This is why at the end of a Bible reading, I will usually say the words, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Or simply say, this is God's word. As a regular and subtle reminder to us that the words that we have just read stand head and shoulders above any human word, no matter how poetic or profound it might be. Paul writes to the Christians at Thessalonica in Greece, and he says to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. I think it's also important to notice something of the Trinitarian nature of the Bible as the Word of God, that all three members of the Trinity are involved. Paul tells us here that the Scriptures are the Word of God, that they are God-breathed. In the introduction to his Gospel, the Apostle John says this, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Similarly, the writer to the Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the word of God in that he reveals God to us. Just as my words reveal my heart to you, so Jesus reveals the heart of God to us because indeed he is God. So, is the Bible the Word of God, or is Jesus the Word of God? Well, the two have the closest possible relationship. Jesus said that he didn't come to do away with the Scriptures. He says very clearly in Matthew's Gospel, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. After his resurrection, we read how Jesus meets with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Luke tells us that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the Bible is, in effect, a book about Jesus. Not that every passage speaks about him or in some sense symbolizes him, but that he is the central character. Jesus is predicted in the Old Testament. He is described in the Gospels. He is explained in the Epistles. And he is expected in the book of Revelation. 
Whenever we look at a passage of scripture, we always see how it fits into the much bigger story of what God has done and is doing for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the work of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures too. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say something along the lines of, well, the Bible is okay, but what we really need is the Holy Spirit. Two parallel verses in Colossians and Ephesians show us that there is the closest possible link between the Holy Spirit and Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And in Colossians chapter 3, he writes, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. There is the closest possible link between the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. We mustn't create a dichotomy between the Word and the Spirit, as if we can have the sermon and the preaching of the Word, and then afterwards have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and ministers to us through the Scriptures. So notice then the Trinitarian nature of the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in giving us the very word of God and speak with one voice. But you may have noticed from that reading in Second Peter that men and women were also involved in writing the scriptures, which raises the question of how God gave his word to us. Did he dictate his words to us, as the angel Gabriel is supposed to have dictated the Quran word by word to Muhammad? Well, parts of the Bible, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, for instance, were given like that. But most of the Bible doesn't come to us in that way. Did God perhaps leave copies of his word lying around for people to discover? as Joseph Smith is supposed to have found the golden plates containing the Book of Mormon lying around in New York. No, the Bible itself tells us how it came to be. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, the Bible is completely the work of God and completely the work of men and women. I say men and women because many of the books are anonymous, and it is my deepest hope that Priscilla wrote the book of Hebrews, for example. Now, this dual nature of scripture might seem contradictory, if not downright impossible, but we accept this when it comes to the person of the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, as the word of God, is both fully God and fully human, and in a similar way, Scripture is completely the work of God and completely the work of men and women. And you can see this when you read it. The different parts of the Bible aren't identical. You can feel the author's personality. 
There are different styles and vocabulary, different types of writing. Personally, I think this is marvellous that God chooses to use human beings to bring his word into the world, just like he uses Mary to bring Jesus into the world, or he uses you and me to preach his word. He could use angels to do these things, but he chooses to use human beings. And yet at the same time, we do see God's directing hand in the process. You will know that the Bible is not really one book, but consists of 66 books. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written by over 40 different authors from many different walks of life. There are fishermen, philosophers, poets, statesmen, scholars, shepherds, military generals, a doctor, tax collectors, rabbis, priests, and prophets. They wrote down history, law, poetry, prophecy, parables, personal letters, and biography. And they also wrote in a variety of different moods. Some writers wrote in the depths of despair, others in the heights of joy. Yet the Bible covers a variety of controversial subjects with complete unity. Now, that is pretty amazing. If we were to take just ten authors, all from one country, all from one language, all from one occupation, in one mood, and ask them to write on just one controversial subject, you would not get a unity, you would get a conglomeration. But with all that diversity in the Bible, the 66 books don't form an anthology, they form a unity. To me, this process says something very important about the sovereignty and providence of God, something that we looked at a little earlier in our study in First Peter in relation to the subject of suffering. We saw how God is so powerful that he even takes the evil actions of men and women and uses evil against itself to bring about something good. And in just as dramatic a way, God so used the personalities and the literary skills and the backgrounds and the experiences and the vocabulary of the various writers so that when they wrote letters and poems and prophecy and gospels under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote down the very words of God. So the Bible as revelation, the Bible as the very word of God given through human authors, and then thirdly, I'd like to look at the Bible as a historical book. Now, we don't have time to look at the entire history of the Bible today. It's quite a remarkable story. But let me give you a few things which I believe support the Bible's own claims of being revelation and the word of God. We don't have any of the original documents of the Bible we don't have Moses' Ten Commandments, or the original scroll of Esther, or the original letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. What we do have, though, are copies of copies of copies of the original documents that have finally come down to us. Most of us remember reading about the monks in our school history lessons who copied out the Bible. 
But even before the monks, there were Hebrew scribes who carefully copied the scriptures for thousands of years. Some people are thrown a bit by the idea that we don't have the original documents, but we can be reassured about the accuracy of the Bible through a science called textual criticism. Imagine that there was a school teacher who received a letter from Nelson Mandela while he still lived, and she was so impressed by this letter that she decided to share it with her class, and so she dictated the letter to her 30 students. If she lost her original letter, would she be able to reconstruct it from the class's 30 copies, even if they each contained mistakes? And the answer is yes. And the techniques and the science of that process is called textual criticism. Textual criticism has to do with the number of copies that we have of a document and the length of time between the writing of the original and its earliest copy. Just to give you some perspective here, we have seven copies of the works of Plato, and the earliest copy is 1,300 years after Plato wrote his original work. We have 643 copies of Homer's work, the Iliad, and the earliest copy is 400 years after Homer wrote it. We have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the earliest copy that we have comes a thousand years after the original was written. By comparison, we have 5,700 copies of the New Testament, and the earliest copy that we have is dated just 50 years after the original was written. The story of the Old Testament is a little trickier. The earliest manuscript that we have of the Old Testament is called the Nash Papyrus, it's a manuscript fragment that dates between 200 BC and 100 AD, but unfortunately it only has part of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and two of the Ten Commandments on it. The earliest complete copy of the entire Old Testament that we have is a codex called Codex Leningradinus. A codex is a manuscript that is in book form rather than in a scroll, and it's often made of vellum, which is very thin leather. Now, Codex L dates back to 1008 AD, which is a very long time after the Old Testament books were originally written. And many people have asked, well, how do we know that the scribes have made accurate copies all the way down through the centuries? Haven't the documents changed during the past hundreds of years? Well, we couldn't answer those questions until 1947, when a little Arab shepherd boy lost one of his goats out in the desert, and he went off to look for it. And eventually he spotted his goat on a rocky outcrop on one of the hills. He wasn't going to climb all the way up there, and so he decided to throw a stone at the goat to try and chase it down. And when he threw his stone, he heard the sound of something breaking, which was very unusual out in the middle of the desert. When he went to investigate, he discovered that he'd broken a pottery jar which was in a cave with a whole lot of other jars, and inside the jars were copies of the Old Testament. There was a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah and hundreds of fragments representing all the other books of the Old Testament. These became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls are important for us because many of them date from between 300 BC and 100 AD. That's a thousand years before Codex L. And when the scholars compared the Dead Sea Scrolls with Codex L, they discovered that they were almost identical. There were a few variations between the documents, but those were mainly due to spelling mistakes. The message of the manuscripts wasn't changed at all. And that demonstrated that through the years, the scribes had copied the scriptures very carefully. We can be sure that the manuscripts we have are accurate copies of the original documents. There's another piece of interesting history about the Bible, and that's the story of where we got one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts from. One of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament is a document called Codex Sinaiticus, which is displayed in the British Library. Codex Sinaiticus dates back to 340 AD. In 1844, there was a German count living in Russia by the name of Lobogot Friedrich Konstantin von Tischendorf, and he went to visit the monastery of St. Catherine at Mount Sinai in Israel. While he was there, he discovered 43 pages of vellum containing parts of the Old Testament in Greek. They'd been torn out of a codex, and they were in a big basket, and the monks were using them to light their fires. Well, as you can imagine, Lobogot had a fit and asked if he could take the manuscripts with him. When he got them back to Germany, he realized that these were some of the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that had ever been discovered, and he presumed that they had been torn out of a codex containing both testaments. And so in 1853, Lobogot went back to the monastery to see if he could find the book that the pages had been torn out of. He couldn't find it. In 1859, he returned to the monastery for the third time, and he spent several weeks searching the library without any success. The night before he was about to return home empty-handed, one of the monks showed him a codex that contained almost the whole Bible. It was this Codex Sinaiticus, and it was one of the most important discoveries ever made. Lobogot took it back to Russia, and in 1933, the British government bought the Codex for their library for £100,000, which was a tremendous amount of money back in 1933, and still is a tremendous amount of money today. Part of the history of the Bible also includes attempts to destroy it. I don't think that there is another book which has been burned, outlawed, and banned as much as the Bible has. In 303 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy Christians and their sacred book. An imperial letter was sent throughout the empire ordering that churches should be razed to the ground and all copies of the scriptures should be burned. The irony of history is that just 25 years later, one of the next Roman emperors, Constantine, commissioned a chap by the name of Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible at the expense of the Roman government. In the 1700s, a chap by the name of Voltaire, who was a noted French atheist, said this, In 100 years from my time, Christianity will have been swept from existence and have passed into history. The amusing thing is, of course, that Voltaire died in 1778, and not 100 years, but 200 and more years have passed, and Christianity is far away from passing into history. 
It still remains the world's largest religion and still continues to grow. What is even more ironic, though, is that just 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society was using his printing press and his house to print and store Bibles. Now, surely a book with such a unique history is worth investigating. Perhaps you are not a believer this morning and you're not even committed to the Bible. I'd encourage you to study the Bible's amazing history. We've seen the Bible as the revelation of God, as the word of God, and as a historical document. But as we close, let me speak about the Bible as the power of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This morning we could tell literally thousands of stories about people whose lives were changed powerfully through reading the Bible. Nikki Gumbel tells the following story in the Alpha Course video on the Bible. I'll send you the link to that video. It's freely available on YouTube. You'll see it's had influence on the sermon today, and it's a really great visual introduction to the Bible. I'd encourage you to watch this as a Bible study group or as a group of friends this week. But Nikki tells the story of a man called Earl Smith. Earl Smith is the cousin of a man called Fred Smith, and Fred Smith is the person behind Federal Express, the courier company, a very wealthy man, so wealthy that even his cousin Earl was a very wealthy man. In fact, Earl was far too wealthy for his own good. He was so wealthy that he spent lots of money, and then he got addicted to drugs, first of all soft drugs and then hard drugs, and he became more and more addicted. By the age of 30, he was so addicted to drugs that he was doing his body so much damage that he was in hospital, and he was really very sick. And while he was in hospital, a Christian came to visit him, and he said to Earl, Look, I've brought you a New Testament to read. Well, Earl was thrilled, because the paper in this New Testament was very thin, and it was perfect for rolling cigarettes. And so Earl smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when he got to John's Gospel, he stopped smoking and started reading it. And he was fascinated by what he read. Indeed, as a result of reading John's Gospel, Earl came to faith in Christ. At the time, he was seeing a psychologist at the hospital. The psychologist was a woman named Tommy. She was a very beautiful woman, highly intelligent. She had many degrees, been very successful in her career. She'd been a model at one time. Now she was successful as a psychologist. And she couldn't make Earl out. She kept on saying to Earl, You know, I don't understand you. Your life is a complete mess. She said, I've got everything. I'm successful. I'm rich. I'm beautiful. And she said, I'm deeply unhappy with my life. Look at you. Your life's a complete mess, but you seem to have this joy, this radiance. Earl said to her, well, the reason is Jesus Christ. And then he led her to faith in Christ. 
and then he married her. <laughs> Earl and Tommy were at Bible college with Nicky Gumbel, and Earl often told the story of how his life was changed through reading John's Gospel. The Bible is not just God's word to mankind. It is his word very personally to me. The great reformer Martin Luther said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You and I can hear the voice of Almighty God speaking directly and personally and intimately to us as we read the Scriptures. We've looked at a lot of things today, and there's still so much more that we could say. When I was at Bible College, I had the privilege of having Dr. Rex Matthew as one of my lecturers. Rex Matthew used to be a metallurgist before he became a pastor, and his hobby was building up motor cars. And so it was great whenever we went to his classroom. You never knew if you were going to get a lecture on inorganic chemistry or theology or car maintenance. But Rex used to say that when he and his colleagues were working in the lab, they were often given substances that they had to test and say what the chemical compounds were. And he said that after you'd performed your litmus test, after you'd subjected this compound to every test in the book, there was just one more very important test that you had to do, and that was the finger test. You would dip your finger in the substance and taste it on the tip of your tongue for yourself. And I encourage you, if you've never done so before, to pick up a Bible and start reading it and discover it as God's revelation, God's word, God's power to you, not just an interesting historical book. And if perhaps your Bible is a little dusty, if you've been listening to the Bible just as one voice among many, I urge you to do what the Christians in Thessalonica did. Receive it, not just as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Amen.